Good morning, friends. Good to see all of you on this holiday weekend. It's good to have uh, some new faces in the room, as many of our uh, members are out of town um, doing various things. What we just sang is a wonderful truth, that one day all things will be made new, and we will see the hope that we have been called to. Right now we live by faith. One day we will live by sight. And we will know that God has been faithful every single moment. There are times right now where it may not feel like that in our experience, if we're being honest. But one day we'll know the deal, that God was faithful always, and we will be with him forever. It will be wonderful. So friends, what we're going to be considering today from the book of Micah has those themes all through it. Judgment, redemption, the hope of God's people. But before we turn our attention to God's word, let's go to him one more time and pray and ask him for his help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, all of us, with various things on our minds and hearts. Some of those things might be really good, exciting. Some of those things might be not so good and not so exciting. It matters not, though, because all of us are in desperate need of what only Jesus can provide. We know that we are in need of righteousness that we do not have. We know that our sins must be atoned for and we are in need of resurrection because we're all perishing. We thank you for Jesus and for the fact that he has accomplished our salvation. We pray, God, that you would show up in this time by your spirit, that you would come and give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look to your word. We pray that you would show us yourself within your word. Show us your faithfulness and your goodness. We pray that you would show us ourselves and our sin and our need. And we pray that you would show us Christ from your word today. Come and do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, there are a lot of good things in life. Many of you have experienced good things even this morning. Many have experienced good things certainly this week. Many of you may experience very good things this afternoon or tomorrow as you perhaps celebrate with family and friends on this Memorial Day weekend. And at the same time, I don't think I need to do much convincing right now about this. Life is hard. There are good things and there are really hard things simultaneously. To think that, oh, well, there are sort of good days and bad days kind of separate from one another is somewhat naive. There is joy and sorrow all the time. There is rejoicing and there is weeping going on all the time in life in this fallen world. This world is fallen and so are you. And because of that, life is often difficult. You face disappointment. You deal with tragedy and loss. There's tiredness and just weariness that settles in on all of us. There are health problems, some of them chronic some of them acute. There's relational strife. There is crisis. And then there's just the daily and weekly grind. That might be the hardest part, honestly, for many. We were talking this morning, a few of us before the service, and there's a lot going on in a number of people's lives in this congregation even today. And we were talking about how it's interesting that we as human beings often respond better to crisis than we do to just day 
after day after day after day of the grind of life. It's interesting. So my question to you, in light of all of that, disappointment, tragedy, loss, health, relationships, crisis, the grind, how do you process that? How do you process that? It's real. It's a real question. In all of that, what is your hope? And I'm not talking about like cute, catchy sayings, right? Cliches, trite sounding things. You can have that. Talking about real lasting hope, not some kind of self-help trick or some sort of positive thinking nonsense, but real lasting hope in the midst of life. Where is that for you? So what do you say we look to the Bible? That's what I think. Trust that's why you're here. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, open them up to Micah chapter 3. We are in the third of seven sermons this morning uh, through the minor prophet book of Micah. I realize for many, I know I have never heard a sermon preached on Micah. I have never heard a sermon series through Micah. So this has probably been new for a lot of us. And I see some new faces with us today. I realize you haven't been here for sermon number one and sermon number two. So while we flip to Micah chapter three, just a couple of big things by way of overview. I leave the first two sermons and that material to you. They're on our website. Uh, They're also on a sermon audio podcast. You want to listen to them. But some important things about the book of Micah. Micah prophesied to both the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital city, Samaria, and he also prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital city, Jerusalem. So this is after the division of the two kingdoms, after Solomon's reign. Micah is prophesying into both contexts. He is a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, who was prophesying in Judah, the southern kingdom. He is also a contemporary of the prophet Hosea, who was prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. So this is the latter half of the 8th century BC. So think like 750 to 700 BC. Major themes of Micah have been very clear in the first two sermons. They'll be clear again today. And they go together. They're interwoven. They're not separate. One is judgment. The other is redemption. Judgment on the people of God for their sin. So that's judgment on Israel, judgment on Judah for their sin. And then God's unswerving commitment to his covenant of grace, his covenant of redemption through all of that. That's what we've been seeing for two weeks and we'll be seeing it again today. So now that you've had time to turn to Micah chapter three and verse one, we're gonna be considering today chapters three and four. Um, So we're gonna be doing this in sort of a flyover fashion, but I trust it will be helpful for us. I'm gonna read all of this, the uh, entirety, I should say, of chapters three and four. So listen now as I read, this is the word of God. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision 
and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power and with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their grain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. We're going to look at it honestly and try to understand it. My plan for us today is to preach this sermon in three parts. Part one will basically be chapter three. Part two will be chapter four. Part three is a reflection from me. Part one and two in the text. Part three is a reflection from me. So part one will Give it this heading. Israel's leaders are condemned. Israel's leaders are condemned. Now, underneath that part one, I've got a few subpoints. I'll try to make that clear to you. So we'll call this subpoint A. 
verses 1 through 4, we're going to look at the rulers of Israel and how they are condemned. Put your eyes on verse 1. Here, O you heads of Jacob, right, rulers of the house of Israel, that's who he's talking to. Is it not for you to know justice? So you of all people, as leaders of my people, should know justice. But you don't. Here we go. For you hate the good and love the evil. What a statement that is. Talk about a complete like reorientation in a horrible way, like flipping a, pro- a proper value system on its head. That's what's going on amongst God's people. You love what is evil rather than hating what is evil. You hate what is good rather than loving what is good. But not only that, not only is their value system just completely whacked out, they abuse and oppress the people. You see this. Strong language is used. You tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. You eat the flesh of my people. You feed on them, essentially. This is figurative language. You flay their skin from off them. You break their bones in pieces. You chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. What we're seeing here, friends, is authority abused horribly amongst the people of God. The abuse of authority is, I think, a uniquely bad sin. See, God obviously is in authority over the entire world. He made human beings in his own image to reign over creation. We were given dominion and authority. And even in our various roles and capacities in life, we all know what authority looks like. Authority is actually a good thing. The problem in a fallen world is that authority is so often abused. The abuse of authority devastates everybody underneath it. And the abuse of authority tells horrible lies about the God of the universe. And that's happening in horrible ways, clearly, amongst God's people. Those who should be leading, those who should know justice, those who should be caring for those underneath them, those who should be protecting those underneath them and cultivating them are abusing and oppressing them. It's a bad situation. This is why the Lord says, Judgment's coming. Put your eyes on verse 4. Then they, being the rulers, right? The rulers and leaders of Israel will cry to the Lord, but he's not going to answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. This is the opposite of like Aaron's blessing in number 6 that we all love so much, right? The Lord calls his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace, Right? This is the opposite of that. God won't hear you. God will turn his face from you because your deeds are evil. This is serious business for the rulers of the house of Israel. Subpoint B, underneath this heading number one, the rulers and leaders of Israel are condemned. Subpoint B, the prophets. Let's look at them. We've thought about the rulers. Let's think about the prophets. Are they any better? The answer is no. Put your eyes on verse five. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. So the prophets should be speaking words of truth to guide my people. But instead, they're telling lies. They're speaking falsehood and they're leading people all kinds of astray. They are completely self-serving in the ways that they prophesy. Let's look at this. So they lead my people astray who cry peace when they have something to eat. So when things are going well for them circumstantially, when they're being compensated well for what they're doing, they're happy to herald words of peace. Good tidings then. 
But then it also says, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. You don't give me what I'm wanting as a prophet. You don't give me, you don't support me the way that I want to be supported. If things are not good for me, then I will prophesy war and disaster. They're self-serving. They're lying, they're deceiving, they're self-serving. Put your eyes on verse 6. So God, again, is going to say, here, here's what's going to happen in light of your sin, in light of your wickedness. Therefore, it shall be night to you, without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun's going to go down on the prophets, and the day will be black. Over them, the seers will be disgraced, the diviners put to shame. They'll all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Silence is coming. This is a complete blackout. Like radio silence from God, full, full stop, right? So we know, even just historically speaking, we know in terms of inspired prophets, we know that there was a period of about 400 years between the last of the Old Testament prophets and the arrival of Messiah. The prophets have nothing to say. The seers will be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. The diviners are just simply those who are trying to prophesy about the future, right? They'll be put to shame and they'll have nothing to say. Verse 8, but Micah is going to speak of himself. But as for me, I am filled with power and the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. This is Micah's unashamed statement about the veracity and the validity of his own ministry, right? As compared to these false prophets that exist amongst Israel and Judah. Subpoint C, again, all under heading number one, the leaders of Israel are condemned. We've thought about the rulers, letter A, letter B, we've thought about the prophets. Now letter C, let's think about kind of everybody, rulers, priests, and prophets. We're going to think about all of them, verses 9 through 12. Put your eyes on verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. So he's speaking to those rulers again who detest justice, right? So you don't like justice. You actually hate it. And you make crooked all that's straight. You pervert things. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Now we think about the rulers and the judges of God's people, right? Verse 11, its heads give judgment for a bribe. They're being bought with a price, right? They're dishonest in their judgments. Priests are no better. They teach for a price. It's all about money. They're after selfish gain. And the prophets also are no better. They practice divination, fortune telling, right? For money. It's what they're doing. This is bad amongst God's people. Yet in all of this, what makes it even worse You see this in the words here in verse 11. It's prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. This is what we thought about last week. We saw similar words. It's just like when the talk of disaster and prophecy of judgment is coming, the response of these people is just, shh, no, no, no. No, don't talk like that. We're God's people. Right? We have favor with the Lord. No judgment is coming. No disgrace is headed our way. The Lord is in our midst. There's no need to fear. This is a gross, as we thought about again together last week, this is a gross misunderstanding 
of the sinfulness of their sin. I appreciated your prayer this morning, brother, in confessing our sins to God. May we all be mindful of how sinful we are. Clearly, God's people were not. To think nothing of their iniquity and nothing of their transgression. We're good. Good with God. Nothing bad's going to happen here. And it's a gross misunderstanding and an underestimation of the righteousness of God as well, right? We've thought about that together. So, verse 12. This is a very pivotal, important verse in this book. And it's also cited elsewhere in Scripture, most notably in Jeremiah 26. This is a prophecy about what's going to happen to the holy city. Therefore, because of you, because of the rulers, because of the leaders, because of the prophets, because of the priests. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. In other words, the city is leveled, flattened. The city of God, flattened. And the mountain of the house, that's the temple mount, right? The temple mount, like where God Almighty dwells on earth in this era of redemptive history, is going to be as a wooded height. It's going to be desolate. Jerusalem flattened, the temple mount desolate. That's what's coming. And remember, friends, that about 150 years or so from the time Micah was probably prophesying this, 100 years certainly within his lifetime, the Babylonians would do just this to the city of Jerusalem. The Lord would keep his word. In the year 586, Jerusalem was leveled at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. And God's people were taken into exile, which we're going to think about more in just a moment. So if we've considered part number one together, the leaders of Israel are condemned. Let's now move on to part number two. And I've given this heading, the future of God's people. The future of God's people. Let's consider it together. Again, I've got several subpoints. So we'll start with letter A, the last days, verses one through five, the last days. I get that from this very first part of chapter four and verse one. It shall come to pass in the latter days. It shall come to pass in the last days, right? that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and he goes on. It's important to note that Micah 4, 1 through 5 is literally, I mean, it's practically identical to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It's pretty cool. These two guys were living at the same time, right? They were prophesying at the same time, and they say the exact same thing about what would happen in terms of God's plans for his restoration of his people and for the future salvation of his people. Many of the things that we're going to look at together, even in these few verses, we need to understand just how prophecy works in the Bible. You've heard me say this a number of times, but it can't be overstated, right? It's good for us to think this way. When God, through the prophets, reveals things in Scripture, there are shorter and longer arcs in terms of its fulfillment. So sometimes we see prophecy fulfilled almost immediately, I mean, within years or decades, and there's that immediate kind of fulfillment. Sometimes it's fulfilled maybe in a different way you know, in a later era of redemptive history. And then maybe ultimately, biggest arc, it's fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we see over and over and over again in Scripture in terms of how prophecy works and hangs together. That's going to be true of these verses. We're going to see some of this immediately fulfilled, inaugurated, 
right? It will begin to be fulfilled when Jesus comes. The era of the new covenant. We're going to see some of this happening. We're going to think about that. And then ultimately, these verses about the future salvation of God's people will find their ultimate fulfillment at the end of history with the consummation of all things, the new heavens and the new earth, when the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, literally comes down, Revelation 21. Right? So just think in these terms as we read these verses together. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, so that's the temple mount again, right? Shall be established as the highest of the mountains. This is a figurative prophecy, right? The temple will be like the grandest, greatest place of most influence on earth. God and his truth, right? And it shall be lifted up above the hills. The peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, let us go to the mountains of the Lord, or mountain of the Lord, excuse me, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You can't help but think about what would happen as the Lord Jesus ascends to heaven. Days later, the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God, right? The new covenant era has been launched, right? The gospel is now going to go to who? The gospel will go to the nations, the news of God's redemption, the news of God's salvation, Right. That's what this is in part pointing to. The nations would come to God. They would come to God to say, teach us your ways. This had not happened. You realize in the world at this time, this had not happened. When the gospel begins to go forth from Jerusalem, I mean, verse three, put your eyes on it. Excuse me. In the verse two, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, right? The word of the Lord would go out. The gospel would be proclaimed to the nations and people would come to God through Christ in ways that they never had. Verse three, he, God shall judge between many people. He'll decide for strong nations far away. They'll beat, so peace is coming. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore we would definitely see the majority of this, at least from our perspective, fulfilled in the future, right? As God's ultimate peace and lasting peace would come through the work of the Messiah, through the proclamation of the gospel and ultimately the return of Jesus. In that time, every man shall sit under his vine, right? Prosperity and under his fig tree, a sign of peace. No one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So if you think Acts chapter 10, like when you think about these verses and what they're saying, think about Acts chapter 10, when Peter has the vision, right? Where like food comes down on a sheet out of heaven and it's all unclean food that you couldn't eat underneath Mosaic food law, right? And he has a vision and and he said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he's like, no, I would never eat anything unclean like that. And the Lord speaks to him through this vision and says, no, don't call unclean what the Lord has made clean, right? Well, what's that signifying? That's signifying that the gospel is about to go to unclean peoples. The gospel is about to go to the Gentiles. Right away, what happens in that context? Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. There's a Roman soldier named Cornelius who also has a vision. I need to send for Peter. Peter needs to come talk to me and my household. Messengers come get Peter. Peter's just had this vision. He's like, this seems coincidental. Maybe I'll go. I'm going to go talk to this Roman guy. Right? So then he goes and he shares the gospel. Cornelius and all the people with him are converted. 
The Holy Spirit falls. Peter says, let's baptize them. Then Peter is before some Jewish believers, chapter 11, and they want to know what in the world's going on, man. Like you went and hung out with Gentiles. You went and preached the news of Christ to Gentiles. What are you doing? He tells them about his vision. He tells them about what happened at the house of Cornelius. I preached. They believed the Holy Spirit fell. I remember what Jesus said. John the Baptist would baptize us with water, but then through him, we'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's granted this to the Gentiles. And then they celebrate together. The gospel's going out. Think about that when you read something like this, right? Yes, it's ultimately fulfilled at the end of history, but friends, we're living in this era now. It's pretty cool. The new covenant era has been inaugurated. We're living in it. The nations are coming to the Lord through Jesus Christ. But then we do see, no doubt, the ultimate realization of these verses at the end of history. You can jot these verses down. Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. Just listen as I read for these words, like key words, like nation and all this kind of stuff. Here we go. And I saw, this is John, I saw no temple in the city. This is the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's pretty cool. The temple mount that would be the highest right thing in the world. Well, now as the new Jerusalem comes down, there is no temple there because God's there. Jesus is there, right? Okay, cool. Now, here we go. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Here we go. By its light will the nations walk. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Wow. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. So the gates don't need to be shut because there's no danger. Peace, right? There will be no night, no fear. Just like Micah says, nobody's going to be afraid. It's going to be a time of peace, right? They will bring, they, the nations, the kings of the nations will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The nations will flow to the Lord. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, ultimate fulfillment, right, of that prophecy. It's pretty cool stuff. The future of God's people, the new covenant era is coming. Final consummation of salvation is coming. Letter B, second heading. Underneath the future of God's people, letter A was last days. Letter B, a covenant promise. A covenant promise. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7 together. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather those who have been driven away. Literally, I will gather those who have been exiled. And those whom I've afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant. Right, The remnant that he's going to save. That language he uses all the time. And those who were cast off, those who were exiled, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, in the city of God, right? from this time forth and forevermore. This is coming. God will restore His people. He will gather His own. Think Ezekiel 34 from last week. I'm going to become the shepherd of my people. I'm going to go and gather them from the nations. Ezekiel 36, I will gather you from the nations. I'll bring you in and I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and my spirit I will put within you. This is starting to be fulfilled and it will be ultimately fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. God will establish his people forever and he will reign over them forever in the city of God, which we just read about. 
from Revelation 21. Let's move on to letter C. I just want to keep us moving, so I want us to have time for our reflection at the end. Letter C, a king reestablished in Zion. Letter C, a king reestablished in Zion. This is verse 8. Let's put our eyes there together. We've already seen this kind of flock, sheep, and shepherd imagery, right? Gathering people from the nations and everything else. We're going to see it more in verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So that flock imagery is present. Former dominion will return to the city of God. The former dominion is a reference to the original shepherd king, David, right? He's the greatest king in the history of God's people. Former dominion will be restored. So friends, I think that we should see verse 8 as a pointer to none other than Jesus, the Messiah. You will have a king again. You will have a shepherd king again who will reign over you in the city of God forever. David's greater son, the good shepherd, Jesus himself, the coming ruler that we will think about from chapter 5, the ruler who would be born in Bethlehem. Letter D, friends, letter D, exile and restoration. I know that this has been a little bit heady, this outline, but I hope it's helpful to you. I want you to understand the text. Letter D, exile and restoration. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13. I want you to know what these chapters are saying when you leave here today. So now we're going to reorient ourselves more towards present circumstance. So this word now that keeps showing up in verse 9 and verse 11. Right? So now, why do you cry aloud? Micah's speaking. Is there no king in you, he asks? Well, there is a king. They have a king right now. Has your counselor, has your ruler perished? Well, no. Is this why you've been seized with pain like a woman in labor? The answer to that is no. Verse 10, here is why, though, the people should writhe and moan. Here is why you should mourn. Here it comes. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion. Not because your kings died or your rulers died. Writhe and groan like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and you'll dwell in the open country. That's bad. And you shall go to Babylon. There it is. This is going to be bad. There will be ruin and devastation. There will be carnage in Jerusalem. Read Jeremiah and Lamentations sometime soon. Read Lamentations. If you're like, bro, Jeremiah is a big book. True. Longest book in the whole Bible. Okay, Lamentations also written by Jeremiah is much shorter. And you'll get the same feel, right? Read Lamentations sometime soon. Read about the absolute carnage that is happening in the city of God. Like, the people are reduced to cannibalism. They're eating their own children. It's horrible. I mean, like, unspoken, unfathomable devastation. That's what's coming to Jerusalem, the city of God. You will go out from the city. You will dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Judah will fall. And its capital city will be leveled. But that's not the end of the story. Same verse. This is remarkable how the Lord does this. We thought about this last week, about how promises of deliverance are interjected in the midst of judgment in a way that almost like breaks your neck. Because all you're seeing is just wickedness and sin, wickedness and sin. And then this bad stuff is going to happen. And then all of a sudden, like, God's going to do something. Here he goes. The prophet says this. There in Babylon shall you be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you 
from the hand of your enemies. We read about the more immediate fulfillment of that prophecy from Ezra chapter 1. Through the Persian Empire, the ones who would conquer Babylon, the Lord accomplishes this. He puts it on the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a decree that the people of Judah can go back to Jerusalem. Are you kidding? Like the most powerful man in the world makes a decree for this small, insignificant people that they can go back to their capital city and rebuild it and rebuild the temple. And he even helps them in the effort. We read about that. This is remarkable, the way that the Lord would immediately even fulfill that return from exile from Babylon to Jerusalem. We read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of the Old Testament. Verse 11, though, let's keep looking together. Now, right now, many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her, let Zion, let Jerusalem be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon her. Most notably in the immediate present, as we've thought about in recent weeks, that is the nation of Assyria, right? In Micah's lifetime, the Assyrians would be conquering Samaria, conquering Israel, making their way in military conquest through Judah to Jerusalem. They would get all the way to the gates of Jerusalem underneath Sennacherib's leadership. And then we read of the interchanges between Sennacherib and King Hezekiah and all these things in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and Isaiah 36 and 37 and how the Lord would deliver Jerusalem then. Not just the Assyrians, though. We thought about how tiny Judah would have interactions with the mightiest nations on earth. Babylon is next. And then Persia. And then the Greeks, the Hellenization of the Jews, right? And then finally the Romans. My goodness, the nations are assembled against you. It doesn't get bigger than that in the history of the world. These are powerful empires, the most powerful empires of their eras, all assembled themselves against Judah and against Jerusalem. And they want to see her destruction. Verse 12, but they, the nations, they don't know what's up. They don't know what's going on, right? They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. They don't know that the Lord is actually gathering them like a harvester would grain. They, do, they just see that the Lord has acted in judgment against his people because of their sin, if they even care, right? Well, the Lord has acted against Judah. And at the same time, they don't realize that none of this means that God has abandoned them. He has not. God means to accomplish his purposes of redemption, and he would use these nations to do it. That's what's remarkable about this. These nations think that they're just kind of conquering the world, and the Lord says, your instrument's in my hands to accomplish exactly what I want accomplished. Judgment on the northern kingdom, Assyria. Judgment on the southern kingdom, Babylon. Return from exile, Persia. The, the crucifixion of Christ for the redemption of God's people, Rome. Right? There it is. God works through the most powerful nations in the world to accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. Verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. In other words, you shall become conquerors. The Lord will restore you and strengthen you. These prophecies of deliverance, of course, are fulfilled in short-term ways. Like when Sennacherib comes to the gates of Jerusalem and tells the people, don't believe Hezekiah when he tells you that the Lord will save you. The Lord will not save you. We've conquered everyone. 
And then what does God do? God speaks and says, you're not going to set foot in the city. I'm going to turn you around the way in which you came. I'm going to put my bit in your mouth and my hook in your nose. You're done. And the Lord puts to death 185,000 men in a night in the camp of the Assyrians. Read 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Isaiah 36 and 7. So God delivers his people in the short term, right? But then he ultimately turns his people and makes his people conquerors, eternally speaking. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, right? That's what's going to happen. Friends, for the sake of time, I'm going to try to move us on. I want to get to this final reflection that we have. Just a very brief word about exile and restoration here in the whole Bible. Exile and restoration are huge themes that we see run throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden, right? The people of God are enslaved in Egypt. God in grace delivers them, right? Then they wander around in the wilderness. They're given the promised land. They sin and rebel. God exiles them again from Canaan. And then God in grace brings them back to Jerusalem. All of these things ultimately pointing to the final deliverance that God will work for us when not only Eden will be restored, but heaven will literally come down and the creation will be liberated from bondage to corruption. So part three, friends, I just want us to think now together a reflection from the text. I'm going to give you the heading. It's kind of a sentence that's not the shortest, so I'm going to say it like two times. Here we go. Our hope in Christ and the promises of God through him is an ultimate hope. The short version of this is our hope is an ultimate hope, but I want to be precise. Our hope in Christ and the promises of God through him is an ultimate hope. In other words, it's not a short-term hope. It's a long, 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 long-term hope. The point here is that our hope in Christ today is anchored in the final realization of God's promises to us in the future. I hope this will resonate with many. Romans chapter 8. You can flip there if you have your Bibles. I'm going to start in verse 18 and just talk about a few things here. Romans 8, 18 and following. This is a passage about final deliverance. It's a passage about ultimate hope. It's a, it's a passage about the redemption and the recreation of all things. Romans 8.18 begins this way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. We're going to think about that more in just a minute. And then he goes on to talk in this next verses about how the creation is groaning. The creation is in bondage. The creation longs to be set free from its bondage to corruption. The creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is what we're looking to. Then he moves on. And I just want to, I want to kind of give you the context of a very famous verse that you might have on your refrigerator. Romans 8, 28, right? That's a very famous verse for many in the room. It's one we look to. Let's read it together. And we know that the, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is all kinds of certainty in that. But the point that I want to draw to your attention is the context in which Romans 8.28 occurs. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Does not mean that you're going to have a swell day tomorrow. Right? It does not mean that things are just going to go great for you at your job. It does not mean that nobody in your family will get sick. It doesn't mean that life won't be hard. That promise is not meant to be taken and kind of turned into just some kind of Christian cliche. Oh, he works all things for good. You know, in the midst of heartache and suffering. May we never talk like that. That verse is about what's going to happen at the end of days. It's what God will do with certainty. He will deliver you and he will deliver me. And that is the hope in the midst of hard days and in the midst of hard times. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He most certainly will. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. And then we go on to see about how in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, through him who loved us. The hope, friends, is in part... The hope is what we see there in verses 31 through 34. The fact that no one can bring a charge against God's people. No one can bring a charge against those who are trusting in Christ. Why? Not because you're righteous in and of yourself. Not because you've got it together. Not because you've been sanctified to a certain degree. None of that. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect because God is the one who has declared you righteous and he's done that through Jesus Christ. Who could condemn you? Christ died for you. The judge is the one who died for you. The judge is the one who paid the penalty that you owe the law, that you owe God. It's done and it's over. And so you can trust and rest in Christ. So we rest not in our own goodness. We rest not in our own sanctification. We rest in Christ. We hope in Jesus. So in the midst of difficult times, when we say hope in Christ, what we're talking about is the fact that you will never be put to shame. Like that at the end of the story, it will go well for you because of these realities. You can bank on that. And if you think that that doesn't matter for your Tuesday, I would just say, like, brother, sister, let's, let's talk about that. Right? If I know sometimes when you're going through the midst of really hard stuff and somebody says, hey, sister, trust Christ, sometimes that might sound like, really, that's what you're going to say to me? It's the greatest exhortation in the world. Who is he? Who is Christ? He has loved you in ways that no one ever has. Right? Who is he? What has he done? He took on flesh. He left the glories of heaven and took on flesh and lived a life in this fallen world that was perfect. A life that you could never live. And his perfect righteousness is counted to you by faith. That's who he is. What else did he do for you? The penalty that you owe God because you've broken his law, he died. He paid it. And in him, you died, really. It's counted as your death. There's no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. Right? Your, your debt is settled. That's who Christ is. You're free. 
You're perishing. You're dying. You're going to be put in the ground one day. Guess what? Jesus got up from the grave, right? He is your resurrection. He's your life. So when we say trust Christ, this is what we mean. Your future is absolutely secure. Like even in terms of this life, we can endure suffering in the short term if we know that something awesome is coming. Can we not? It's like, hey, I'm going to press through this difficult week because vacation's coming. I'm excited. How much more so do we say, okay, in the midst of these trials and this suffering, I'm going to press on, I'm going to lift my eyes, and I'm going to trust Christ because I know that he's got me and I know what's coming. That's the ground of the hope. This is what's happening in Micah. You realize this, right? This is what the prophet is saying. It's going to be really bad for a while. Like exile and like cannibalism and all these things are coming. Jerusalem's going to be level. But God's going to deliver you. He's not abandoning you. He's keeping his covenant. You will dwell with him forever. That's his promise to his people. God is unswervingly committed to his people and keeping his promises. Final salvation, resurrection, and rescue, and joy in God forever is ours. So this matters for today, and it matters for tomorrow, and it will matter on Thursday when you're going to the office yet again, and it's just like, this is the last thing I want to do. Or when you're struggling with your singleness and you want to be married or you're struggling with your kids because it's hard or you're struggling because you don't have kids and you want them. This is the ground of your hope. Terrible stuff. Brothers and sisters, one of my jobs, I think, as a pastor is to prepare you to suffer. One of my jobs is to prepare you to suffer because it will happen. Suffering and calamity and disaster are not the exception in this fallen world. They're normal. Terrible stuff could happen to you, to me. But the word is don't be afraid. Don't worry. Because the Lord will rescue you and restore you finally. I don't know that your next week is going to go great. I don't know that it's going to go well for you in 10 years. But I know that I know that I know that it will go well for you forever. Because Christ has seen to that. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 reads this way. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now listen, real talk. Those verses, Romans 8, 18, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, those are not statements about how small the suffering or the trials are. Those are not statements about how small or insignificant the suffering is. Those are statements about how great the glory is that's coming. Track with me. A lot of times we read those verses and we just kind of dismiss the hardness of suffering. We should not do that. There can be horrible things in this life that we should call horrible. Those verses are making it clear that as horrible and as bad as anything might be now, what's coming is so great that these afflictions are light. These afflictions, by comparison, are easy. These 
afflictions and these trials, by comparison, are quite brief. Even if it feels like we spend the majority of our days in the dark night of the soul. So when you process suffering and difficulty, brothers and sisters, with your health, or your marriage, or your singleness, or your kids, or your child business, or your job, or your unemployment, when you encounter tragedy or crisis, or when the daily grind has just beat you to death, and you're like, look, the pads have long since worn away, it's been metal on metal for a while, and I don't know what to do. I don't know when I look at my calendar on my computer, I don't know whether to ball my eyes out or throw it out the window, right? Like life is hard right now. When you process suffering and when you process trial, don't do these things. I'm just going to give you some do's and don'ts. Here we go, some practical takeaways, right? This is me and you talking about this. Don't, when you encounter trials and suffering, look for some kind of silver bullet answer. Don't look for some magic answer. Oh, if I could just get it right, if I could just understand this one thing, then it's all just going to fall into place and now I'm going to be good. Don't try to read through every line of God's providence. Like you got a bunch of tea leaves out and you're trying to figure out what exactly is God doing. That's not helpful. You don't know the intricacies of his plan. You don't know what everything that's in his mind. You know what you need to know. You know that he's good. You know that he's faithful. You know that Christ has you. You know what forever holds. You know that he is conforming you to the image of Christ. But that's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not your prerogative to figure that out. So don't worry about that. Don't, in the midst of suffering and trial, turn promises of ultimate hope, like Romans 8.28, like final salvation's coming, Don't turn those promises into some kind of self-help formula or some cute cliche, some trite saying that we just kind of sloppily throw around like fools who don't understand anything, right? Don't do that. Cling with all of your life to those promises, but in an ultimate way, like God will deliver me and Christ has me. Okay, like I'm going to live from there backwards and we can get through this. Don't, lastly, deny the difficulty and the hardness of suffering. So sometimes we do this. Sometimes we'll just, we won't acknowledge how hard something is. Now we can fall off the other side of the horse, don't get me wrong. I mean, we don't need to be throwing pity parties for ourselves all the time. That's not what I'm saying either. I think you know that. But sometimes we, it sounds pious to us to frame everything as though it's just wonderful. And I think the biblical pattern is something different. We can call the trial, we can call the suffering terrible and at the same time acknowledge that God is on the throne and at the same time acknowledge that God will, through it, accomplish his purposes. This is terrible right now and God is true. This is hard and I am Christ's. So here are some things to do, to consider when you're processing suffering and trial. We're almost done. So do this, trust Christ, rest in him and what he has accomplished for you. Like it cannot wash over you enough that you have all the righteousness that you will ever need now because Christ has accomplished that. That you need never fear judgment because the penalty really has been paid and it's done. The fact that you need not fear the grave because Christ has conquered that for you. 
Trust him and rest in what he has accomplished. Secondly, something to do in the midst of suffering. Remind yourself of God's utter and unswerving faithfulness. One day all things will be made new. I'll see the hope you called me to, and in your kingdom paved with gold, I'll praise your faithfulness of old. Thirdly, set your heart on Christ and on being with God and the people of God forever. So when your life is really hard and things are tough, think about the glory that awaits. That's the message of Scripture. Think about what's coming. You will dwell with God. He will be your God and you will be his people. You will see Christ as he is. You'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. There will be perfect fellowship with other people. There will be no war, no strife, no sin, no suffering, no pain, no sorrow anymore. And you think that's coming. And I'm promised that and it's certain because of Christ. And I'm going to live from that backwards. I live from the end of the story backwards. And then finally, in the midst of suffering, Acknowledge the hardness of it. Acknowledge the difficulty of it. And then in the difficulty, lift your eyes above the horizon. Lift your eyes to Christ and the promises of resurrection and the promises of eternal life. Acknowledge, like I said a moment ago, this is how we ought to speak. This, what I'm going through right now, is really hard and my God is true. This, what I'm going through right now, is absolutely terrible, and I am Christ's, and I know he has me. I know that I can trust God, and I know that he is not wasting my sorrow. He spends them well. Every tear, he spends it well. I am being conformed to the image of Christ by the Spirit, and I know that I'll be with Jesus. Like These are the things that we cling to in the midst of suffering. We are resting, in other words, friends, our hope is ultimate. We live with an ultimate hope that changes our day to day, right? Just like God's people as exile and judgment and all these things are prophesied, redemption is prophesied into that. It's going to be bad and restoration's coming. Friends, I have no idea what life holds for you. It could be bad, this side of heaven. And resurrection and redemption is coming because Christ has accomplished it. So we rest in Christ today because in him we have eternal life. In him we have everlasting peace. And in him ours is everlasting joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now and we acknowledge the fact that we often don't deal very well with the hardships in life. We tend to be very short-sighted. We tend to We do want things to go well for us now. And we pray that you would work in us by your spirit and give us this eternal perspective. We pray that you would give us unshakable confidence in you, in your faithfulness. We pray that we would rest in Christ, in the righteousness that he has provided in his atoning work and in his resurrection that awaits us. We do pray that this ultimate and final hope would transform the ways that we think and live tomorrow and on Tuesday and every day after that. We pray that as we come to the Lord's table together now that you would minister to us by your spirit, that you would be sustaining and even strengthening our faith. We pray that we would remember what Christ has done and that we would also be mindful of the fact that we are proclaiming his death until he does come back. So we pray that we would come to the table looking to the future in hope of what you will do. Be with us now in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.